0: We must be committed to creating a culture of benevolence, looking out for other people's needs. And by doing that, what it does is it it moves things upstream a little bit, and instead of us only being focused on value or driving more value, we actually create an opportunity to build trust.
1: Hey y'all and welcome to Guild Stories, the podcast where every person has a story and it's the stories that connect us all. I'm Justin Rickloff, founder and CEO of Guild Content, husband of Brooke and father of five young people. And I'm joined today by my lovely co-host who happens to be my wife as well.
0: Hey guys, I'm Brooke, owner of Reclaim the Home, Justin's wife and mother of five, We're so grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where we'll explore the stories of hustlers, dreamers, and doers who are going for it by pursuing meaningful work and living life with purpose.
1: Welcome to Guild Stories. Awesome, gang. Well, we're fired up today to, man, I I don't even know really how to intro this guy because there's like so many different buckets and so many different hats. Um, So many roles he's played personally in my life and also kind of in the arc and the story of Guild content, um, but I'll get to it. So he's an Ironman, he's an ultra athlete, he's a builder of trust, he's a business coach, he has a, a big-time a big day job as the director of church and community engagement at one of the biggest churches in Kansas City. Um, he's kind of this naturally born guide. He's a dad of four, husband to Jamie, um, which we're going to hear all about that um, and many, many, many other things. So Corey Shear, welcome to the show, my friend.
0: Hey, thank you, Justin. It's great to be with you. Yeah, Happy man. New Year.
1: Yeah, likewise. Happy New Year to you too. So, um, man, again, I could take this a million different directions, um, but to, to help reign my own ADD here, um, <laughs> give us a quick intro. Like, who are you? Why are you here? What are you about, my friend?
0: Yeah, well, so Justin, I think we've known each other for now for several years, but I, I moved here in 2007, my wife and I did. We had two kids at the time, and uh, we had just wrapped up a season in our 20s where we were working in a dream job in Colorado at Noah's Ark, water rafting company, and uh, I was given far too much responsibility probably for that age and that season of my life, but to be able to be in charge of about 70 guides and to help 25,000 people have an awesome experience each summer in Colorado and the Arkansas River, and then... Uh, at the age of thirty, my wife kind of looked at me and she said, "Hey, are you going to be a ref guide your entire life?" or because if so, I need to prepare for that." And that was that was probably the signal for me to say, "You know what? I think it's time for a new season." So we pretty much moved side on scene to Kansas City. This is where Jamie is from. This is where she grew up. and we knew that we wanted to land uh, outside of a smaller town into a larger a larger metropolitan area. and so we chose Kansas City. And we've been here since two thousand and seven and It has been awesome, and so since that time, a couple of job changes, a couple of uh, graduate degrees, and then a couple of of kids, and so now I have four kids, (laughs) Kaelin, who's 17, Isaac is 14, and then we have Evan, who's nine, and then uh, Levi is eight.
1: That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in Wyoming, actually, so I was born in a little town called Wheatland, Wyoming, and not a lot of people can say that they were born in Wheatland, Wyoming, because it is a... (laughs) a speck on the map, but a great little town and close to Cheyenne, Wyoming, about an hour north. We grew up in Cheyenne, and then my dad moved to St. Louis, and I followed him and had a great high school career there, and then ultimately landed down south in Bolivar at Southwest Baptist University for my undergraduate studies, and then that's how I got connected with the Colorado job as a summer guide, and then that summer guide opportunity turned into a a full-time gig.
1: That's awesome, man. Um, th- there's again just so much bouncing around uh, in my brain already trying to trying to get to. But let's let's pause here for a moment. Um, the Arkansas River, okay. So so you've taught me a ton about being a guide. Um, you were you were actually a guide, so I think it's like this perfect metaphor for like <laughs> in, in many ways. Your job was kind of this um, analogy to what you're you're now doing in your in your in your life in many areas, not just work. Um, but, man, like, what are some of those lessons you learned on the river all those summers and winters as you kind of worked there full time? But um, I, I know you've been very gracious in your, your wisdom and, and your help as we shape our story at Guild. Um, and you've told many of those. But I'm just curious, like, when, when you think about those years on the river, like, what lessons kind of just pop into your mind?
0: Oh, uh, There's so many lessons. Um, it's pretty dangerous to get a group of river guides in the same room Uh, because four hours later they're still talking about the good old days. My wife kind of rolls her eyes whenever I have a reunion with any of the former guides, but there are many, many lessons learned. A couple that really come to my mind, um, we always used to say that you could always tell the first-year guys because they were the ones with the biggest muscles, and uh, what that means is is that typically the first and the second-year guides are the ones because they don't understand the currents and they don't really understand... A river, how the river moves and how the water flows down the river corridor, they're typically the ones that that fight against the river hardest. and So they take more strokes, they work a lot harder, and then you look over at a fifth- or a six-year guide and they'll just be casually making little micro-strokes with their paddle just to get down the river and they'll be able to run it uh, with ease. And so the lesson, the analogy there for me is whenever we start something new, there's always that sense, there's always that dynamic of we're fighting against the current. And there's this element of we may have really big muscles as it were, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're very effective. And so for me, one of the things that was very powerful about the work at NOAA's was our first year guides always had people who were near them that were much more experienced. And they would we would debrief after every trip. We would have these small conversations that would continue to fine-tune the skills of a first-year guide and over time, that first-year guide then became a trip leader, and that trip leader mm-hmm. became uh, much more experienced, and then that more experienced guide was called upon in, in rescues or in different trip dynamics. That was something that was a very powerful um, realization. And then the other thing from a guest standpoint, we always had to remind ourselves that, although it may have been our 80th 80th trip down the river that particular summer, for that that. Group of customers that morning, or that group of customers that afternoon, that was their first trip that summer. And perhaps that was their first trip they've ever been on the river. And that was an important reminder because where it may have been routine for us getting deep into the summer, where the water was getting lower and it maybe wasn't quite as exciting, we always had to put the lens on that this was the customer's experience before it was our experience. This was the customer's trip before our trip. And that, that shift in my thinking has been really helpful as I think about it's not about what I think mm. or what I feel ultimately. It really is about who am I serving and how are they experiencing what I'm offering to them. Mm. And so having that lens, no matter what the river level was or the, how hot it was outside or how many trips I had done, it reminded me of the fact that for this person on that trip, on that day, this was their first time. And for them, it was a lifelong experience that I had an opportunity to be a part of. Mm. So those are two important lessons I think that I took away.
1: Man, it's huge. And and uh, it, it resonates with, with me in, in this particular season of, of our kind of business arc and story um, in that, you know, it, it's really tempting. And, and, and I think maybe even kind of the default operation is like, hey, how's this good for me? How's this work well for us? How do we grow? How does whatever the thing is that we're touching, how does it be better, be more successful? And that lens of kind of, you know, Donald Miller talks uh, at, at, at really eloquently about shifting your concept from, hey, the brand or the person or the coach or the pastor or the whatever is not the hero of the story. They, they think they are. The hero of the story is the customer, is that person on August 10th who's, finishing up their summer on vacation with their family, wanting to go down the river. They don't care that you've been down 80 times before. That's right. Nor should they. Yeah. Um, and But, but man, that, like, it's subtle, but it's a massive distinction between, hey, the the company or the brand is the hero of the story versus the guide in the customer's story. Yeah, that's um, right. and, But why is that so difficult to, like, actually embrace, and why do so few people embrace it?
0: Yeah, I think um... – I'll speak to myself personally, I think it's probably because I am by nature a very selfish person. Me too. (laughs) Same. And uh, it's good to know that I'm not alone in that. (laughs) Um, I I think that we, we tend to go back to the status quo. In fact, I was just, I was speaking about this recently where we're we're literally hardwired. Our, Our brains, there's a, there's a a neuroscience that did some research on the neurons in our brain and in a specific area of our brain called the basal ganglia. We have two competing neurons that are firing. One is called the go neuron and the other one is called the no go neuron. And the, the no go neuron is the neuron that helps protect the status quo. So we're, we're wired for that. And it's actually a stronger neuron experience for the status quo than it is to break the status quo. There's a threshold between those Mm. two neurons. And so there's scientific evidence that shows that we are, we prefer and we settle into the status quo. And so because of that, Mm. because we're physically wired to do that, that's one of the competing factors of why we want to stay comfortable and why we want to stay still in the status quo. But then I think also we're we want to protect what we have built up. You know, We want to protect the things that we have accomplished. And so if we go away from that, then we're going not only against the status quo, but we're also going against all of the work that we've kind of put forth prior to that. And so mm. for me in my own journey, I've had to continually find ways to break free from that, but not do it in a way that that is drastic because if it becomes drastic or if it goes at a rate at which I cannot handle, then I will become discouraged. And when I become discouraged, then I'll pivot to do something else. So there's this really fine balance, I think, this equilibrium of always creating tension. I love what Andy Stanley says. Within an organization, it's either a problem to solve or a tension to manage. And we cannot be afraid of the tension that we're managing. We need to be mindful of the problems to solve, but we must introduce and actually create tension within our lives and within our organization. Otherwise we've all heard there will be no growth without any of that that kind of that, that disequilibrium that's healthy. Mm. And so for me, whereas it may become easy to become comfortable, uh, I have to surround myself with people, I have to continue to challenge my own thinking and my own learning so that I might be able to break through that status quo in an
1: appropriate way. That's so good and it, and, and yeah, it's so true like hand raised selfish individual selfish human um but what's fascinating and 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 you would run circles around me on the academics around this and the research but um what's absolutely true whether it's commerce or relationship or parenting or just like good human nature that exercise to break that status quo and and enter into another's experience um Transforms things, including ourselves. <laughs> like for me to understand the lens of Corey Shear as best as I can. That old proverb of walk a mile in his shoes, right? Like for me to understand your life. If you were a customer, or if I'm, if I'm your customer, going down the river in in the early two thousands and at the Arkansas River, um, you entered my experience to make that good for me. Um, what's that do to health? To relationship to business? <laughs> like, are, are, is there anything that's like beyond the kind of empathetic conversation that, that takes place? Like, are, is there a, a transfer of, of what trust? Is there w- like what takes place and what is the benefit?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I you know, we've talked about this at length offline, but um, in, in some of the reading and the research that I've done, there there is empirical evidence that shows that um, one of the primary ways to build trust in an organization and with other people is by having an attitude of benevolence, mm. which is basically looking out for other people's needs. And so this isn't just a, an empathetic exercise or, or something that's a nice, nice to do, or, or just as a result of my own personality or my own commitment or my own upbringing. Benevolence is an intentional strategy to build trust with others. It's an empirical, there's empirical research that shows this. It's been shown in, The retail industry. It's been shown in the airline industry. It's been shown in higher ed. And so as a leader, as an organization, we must be committed to creating a culture of benevolence, looking out for other people's needs. And by doing that, what it does is it it moves things upstream a little bit. And instead of us only being focused on value or driving more value, we actually create an opportunity to build trust. And so in addition to the benevolence What the research also suggests is that we have to be problem solvers and we have to be competent. And so by those three things, if we're competent, if we're problem solving, and if we are benevolent looking out for the needs of others, we will naturally start to build trust with others. I think that that's, it's intuitive with a lot of people. I think we feel it. I talk about, uh, I've talked about how um, there's kind of a residue when you walk away from a really trusted good experience versus a really rough experience where you walk away with this residue, and the, the trust residue is something that feels really good, and it actually it, it brings you back. It it encourages you and motivates you to want to come back to have that same experience. Um, but when we have those negative experiences, we respond in a much different way. And um, as, as a person, as a dad, as a husband, as an, a person that is a part of an organization, that as a church where we're continually trying to find ways to to connect with people, to make a big church small, to engage with people on their story. I have to be about being uh, building trust, because if I'm not building trust, then I'm really not, number one, I'm not living out what I'm committed to from a faith standpoint. But number two, I'm not honoring that other person. I'm not honoring their story. And so what would it look like if we entered into a conversation with people with a mindset of, I just want to hear their story. And that's one of the things I love about what you guys do at Go Content is that you're all about the story. It isn't just about information. You really want to understand where that information is coming from, the root of that. And so that is an element of benevolence. You're demonstrating that. And I think if more leaders and more organizations were committed to authentically building trust, they would, they would see a tremendous increase in not only the value that is perceived by their customers, but also the loyalty that they receive um, as people continue to come back or they refer people to that experience.
1: And, and is it, um, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm biased because you've helped us shape this for, for our own internal purposes, but is there a revenue implication to all of this? Absolutely. I mean, if you
0: think about the most trusted brands, the most trusted leaders, the most trusted organizations, they're the ones that are in the highest demand. And they're the ones that can charge what they want to because people will come back. Um, I'm reminded of this every time I go to Disneyland and I buy (laughs) another set of Mickey Mouse ears for my kids. And I think to myself, if I were to walk down the street of Liberty with Mickey Mouse ears on, I would be laughed at. And there would probably be a news story about that person over there wearing Mickey Mouse ears in Liberty. But there's something about the Disney experience. And... The reason why it's such a powerful experience is because every time I've been to Disneyland, you see competence with their characters and competence with the, the rides and competence with all of the things that they do at are they're, they're problem solvers. If you have an issue or a challenge, you can always find someone that will help solve a problem. They won't necessarily solve the long lines, uh, but they've tried to do some different things to do that. But then finally, you always feel like you're a part of the characters experience there and you're invited into that. And so because of that, it, it not only demands loyalty, but it also, it receives my, my income. The income that I receive goes to Disney because I trust them with that experience. And I see what that experience does for my family and for my children. And so that's, that's kind of the ultimate example of that. There are many, many brands though that because of the trust that they have built, the value has increased and then therefore the loyalty it's increased as well. So definitely a an, uh, revenue. And I think more than just a revenue implication, that's a loyalty implication, which ultimately is a revenue implication as well.
1: I love that, man. Uh, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm thinking um, of our own son, nine years old. So loves sports, loves outside, loves, you know, being a boy. And his his Christmas gifts this year were like, hey, I got a Patrick Mahomes pair of socks, and I got a drone, and I got whatever, like all these cool things, Right. Um the, the I think the single most excited he was the whole kind of different we had three or four different Christmases with grandparents and whatever. Um was when he got like a ten dollar Chick-fil-a gift card. And and it's like you talk about loyalty. It and again, I love I like Chick-fil-A. I think their food's good, right? Not great. Um, but it's a brilliant concept to take this fairly ordinary business model and even menu, frankly. Um, but you open these Restaurants and high density locations that are clean, that are friendly, and and and, and more than friendly, very hospitable and benevolent—to to use your word, which is better. Um, and and oh, by the way, we're only open six days a week, <laughs> right. no exceptions. Right. And and they they are crushing it from 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 that loyalty and that revenue perspective. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't I don't know where I'm going with that, but it just it resonated with me. Of like, yeah, that's that. That benevolence piece and that trust creation piece absolutely not only drives loyalty, I think it I think it transforms you into this otherworldly brand where you're you're not a commodity. You're a it's a it's a totally different conversation.
0: It is. And to actually to take that and and to implement it into your strategy of saying, how do we as an organization become more competent? How do we as an organization become more problem solving? How do we as an organization become more benevolent? Like if if we were to do that, if we were to start out every meeting by saying, how does this policy line up to our three commitments of building trust? Is that policy competent? Does it solve a problem? And is it benevolent? And if it's not, then we probably need to reevaluate that what can often happen in an organization is we say, well, why are we doing that policy? And it's typically because that's how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably the most expensive phrase in business is that well, we've always done it that way. Mm-hmm. It's a really dangerous phrase. It's it's phrase of status quo. It's a phrase of not thinking forward. And it's certainly not a phrase that runs it back through the filter of those three criterion of, is it competent? Is it benevolent? And it is a problem solving. And so mm-hmm. For me, I think the, the aha moment occurred when this wasn't just a, a narrative that I read. This was research that was done. And to know that it was statistical significance, this research bears itself out. It's pretty powerful. You can't argue against that. That's a very competent approach from a strategic standpoint to growing trust. Uh, and so to understand that structure, to understand how that applies in my own leadership and organizationally, I think has been a, it's been a game changer for my way of thinking.
1: It's awesome, man. Um, and and if you don't mind, I mean, I, I'd like to talk specifically how w- we sat in I think this exact room and scribbled on the whiteboard, and you helped me articulate something that we felt and knew, even, um, but but had a hard time of operationalizing, <laughs> I guess to use that phrase, in in the sense of we from day one, and I do have a funny. Quick story about about day one that we'll come back to that involves you, but um, for us to earn trust is the single most significant. I don't even like the word, but it's the single most significant transaction in our business. Is the second, and you can't articulate an exact moment, of course, but when there is trust on the other side of the table, and we are seen as a as a trusted and valuable partner to their marketing objectives. Things change for everybody, you know, us included. Um, but but it was tough for us to articulate how to get to that point. Like, again, intuitively, that's kind of how we're wired and how we care and how we love um, and how we think and how we operate. But but to, to spell that out with clarity, not that it's a formula, but to spell it out with like, hey, this is how we do things. This is how you get to that point. You are mind-blowingly helpful to help us see, oh, it is. It's about being very competent, have to be competent, competent. It's about solving really core problems in their business. Got it. Let's let's document and architect that. And then it's the benevolence piece, and that we call it client care, right? But that, that area has to be very clear. And so what was fun is that, you know, our team, Colin and Lauren primarily, plus me and, and some other inputs, you specifically, we documented, and it took us forever, not literally, but we documented our – and, and it goes back to your rafting days, your guiding days. Our ideal client experience. What's the journey? Yeah. There aren't. There aren't. And not everything's ideal, of course. But if we could script it a to z, what do each of these gates or these points, each of these rapids look like, and how do we navigate them through these different rapids? And and I'm telling you, man, like the the the, the seeds that we've planted over the last six months in terms of that internal infrastructure and architecture. Um, time will tell, but I think it like, I think it's a radical transformation into this new stream of like, Oh, like now, now it gets out of this kind of, um, gut level intuition and into this system or process. I, 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 help, yeah. help me. Help well, me
0: understand. I th- you've done that. And you're starting to really see some of those seeds take root. I think the One of the most powerful things about implementing that type of a process or that structured way of thinking, especially when it's empirical and research-based in regards to building trust, is that let's fast forward a year from now, and there's a policy or a procedure that you've got in place that that you're discussing and you're working through because of your organization, how it's changed. Well, now you'll be able to come back with your team, and, and with an unemotional analysis, you'll be able to go, okay... Whether this was my idea or not, that doesn't really matter. Primarily, what matters most is that we're, we're, being, we're being mindful of the process that we started out with, which is we're going to be committed to these three things. And so you can actually run your current situation up against that model of is it competent, is it benevolent, is it problem solving? Because in a year, that particular policy, it may not be the most competent policy. In fact, it may be creating more problems. And maybe your organization is at a place where the customer needs are different than what it was a year prior. Mm. Well, that's fine. Just because, just because the organization has changed, doesn't mean that that is a wrong. That's necessarily wrong. In fact, that's healthy. That you're moving your organization. But Justin, if you, as the CEO of Guild Content, said, "No, this was my idea a year ago, and it's going to continue to be my idea because I say so," well, that's not that number one. That's not benevolent to your staff. That's definitely not competent, and you're probably going to create more problems. Mm. But as the founder of the organization, you probably have every right and you would be justified to have that mindset in your own mind potentially. But you, as the CEO, have an opportunity to bring people back to the more objective construct, the, the structure of how are you going to build trust. It's the same thing with employees. I mean, imagine if, if your quarterly review or your annual review with an employee were three questions. How competent is this person? how much of a problem solver are they and how benevolent are they? Or in an interview Mm -hmm. where if you have a group interview with someone and you walk out and you have an evaluation of this, of this applicant and uh, you say on a scale of one to five, there are three out of five on competence. There are two out of five on problem solving and there are one out of five on benevolence. Should you hire that person? Probably not. Absolutely not. And so this is where it becomes Mm -hmm. a bit of a construct and a framework to where it's not only for the policies, but it's also about people that's what the research also shows is that it's in those two primary areas of people and policies. That's where trust is built or broken down in every organization. And so um, one of the challenging parts, I think, is it's such a simple construct, it almost feels elementary. Right. And so the discipline to be able to come back to that and go, no, 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 there's three questions that we need to be asking ourselves. I think that's the power, but also a little bit of the peril mm-hmm. in the model is that it's so simple, um, but it works. And you guys have seen how it is, how it, how it has worked and how it's going to continue to work. And um, for me, I think even in my own parenthood, uh, as, as I have four children that are very different from each other, I have to continually ask myself the question for Levi, what is the most benevolent approach to this? Or, or my daughter Kaelin, how do I approach this? Or how do I solve this problem for Evan? Or mm-hmm. what's the most competent approach for this 14-year-old named Isaac? How do yeah. I do this? So um, it it's not just an organizational construct; it's very much a personal one for me as well.
1: It's awesome, man! It's so good. And and um, here's here's the funny story that uh, that is that I love telling that I haven't told very often. So I'm I'm Corey and I met at when i was at the chiefs and he was in a different role than he is today met through a friend had coffee a bunch and i was at this place in life where um it, it was just a really interesting kind of pivotal time for me and what was what was cool is cory became and it and it just was intuitive it just was connected like i we had breakfast at ginger sue's on the square in liberty and i was like dude i i didn't even say this but uh the feeling was like, man, I trust that guy. Like that guy's got, um, he's got, he's a guide. That's not some guy like looking out for his, right? And you, you made this comment that I'd love for you to expand on if you'd be open to it, but you made this comment that honestly kind of rattled me and, and scared me a little bit where you said, man, like I think we all have this, this shadow mission and we all have this thing that looks like True North, but it's just slightly off course. Um, that you're, again, back to this guide analogy, like you think you're running the rapid the right way, but you're just slightly different than, than where it should be. And there were some things happening in my own kind of personal life at that period of time where I was like, "Uh." (laughs) (laughs) like, I think he sees the shadow (laughs) part of me and not the like shiny part that I want him to see. Um, and, 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 and that among with lots of other kind of circumstances in life, um, Uh, really opened me up to this concept of vulnerability and empathy and understanding and and living with kind of this openness and this willingness to go to the darker places, because uh, honestly, up until that point, like I didn't want to see that stuff. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want anybody else to see it. I wanted to pretend it didn't exist. So um, long, long intro to the question, but I'd love if you would unpack, if you'd be willing to kind of this, this concept of a shadow mission and in particular, how, again, not not as an absolute, but what are some ways that that appears, especially in high capacity leadership type people? Um, where does that appear, and where does that kind of get funky for people? Yeah,
0: such a great topic and and a hard one because it's it can get pretty honest pretty quick. Gary Thomas is a he's a Christian author and there's a book called Thirsting for God that. <laughs> That he wrote that talks about shadow mission, and so I think I was actually mm. I was reading that book at that at the time of that conversation. Um, and what struck me about shadow mission and thinking about it in terms of of a compass, if you've ever done any backcountry orienteering, one of the dynamics of a compass is that when you when you're trying to find your way on a map, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you've got to establish three waypoints, and those three waypoints create a triangulation, and that triangulation, when you draw lines to the middle, that points to where, you know, you're at specifically on the map, but in order to oriental, orientate yourself to the map, you have to have a compass, and that compass, you have to determine what is north, and then what is true north. Well, the dynamic of a compass is that you can establish what north is, but then, depending on where you are located, so in Colorado, I think it's like eight or nine degrees that you have to account mm-hmm. for the for the calibration because the compass is going to go to true North or the compass is going to go to magnetic North rather, but then you have to calibrate it and correct it to go to true North on the Mm -hmm. map. And if you don't do that, your, your bearing, your reading is going to be eight degrees off. And so in my own life, I found that if I were to just set the compass of my life down, it's going to go to the magnetic North and the magnetic North for me is pulled and it's magnetized by things like pride. And it's magnetized by things like achievement. Or it's magnetized by things like wanting to be seen by other people. That's the magnetic north. And if I don't ever calibrate it to true north, which is what I need to be about as a father, as a husband, as someone who is in ministry, as, as a, a competent member of society, if I don't Mm. calibrate that, if I'm not intentional about moving that eight degrees, then I will continue to be pulled towards that magnetic North. Now, North is North in the eyes of other people. And so eight degrees may, may, it may not make a big difference for someone just uh, interacting with you or watching. In fact, you may be celebrated for that magnetic North. You may be celebrated for that pursuit of achievement or for that pride. Um, but in my own life and, and knowing my own heart, if I don't calibrate that, if I don't have the discipline and the checks in place in order to move it from magnetic north to true north, then I will do damage. I'll do damage to my soul, and I'll do damage to other people ultimately. But it's very subtle, and Gary Thomas talks about how that subtle shadow mission, even though you might be celebrated for the shadow mission, it's not it's not what we need to be about. And so it is, it's really hard. It's hard to dig deep and to evaluate that. It requires a close group of people that can say, wait a minute, that feels like your shadow mission. It does require vulnerability. Um, it requires a lot of self self uh, reflection and introspection and journaling and prayer. And, um, for me, that's, that's something that is a continual struggle. And if I do not calibrate, I will continue to get pulled back to the magnetic North, which is the shadow mission.
1: Man, it's fascinating because it, <laughs> um, you, you, shared that with me three or four years ago. Um, and and it still is this like really powerful concept of it's not 180 degrees different. It's not like oh this guy's so he's going off the rails and doing this thing right. It's that eight degree subtle distinction of like what what you said is so true that most of the time you even get celebrated for it. That's right, promoted, married, whatever, like things all you know the the things that are 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 feeding that are actually what, uh, ultimately has to break, I think, in order to kind of reach that true north. So, um, in your experiences, has there been kind of this like breaking moment or this place where you're like, Ooh, yeah, like I, I didn't actually even see it, but this happened and it, and it <laughs> pulled me back into the true north oh, uh, or, or yeah. you, yours or others. Have you seen kind of general ways where that's happened?
0: Yeah, i Podcast is not long enough <laughs> to, to go. There's, there's so many examples. I mean, it's, it's daily. Yeah. It really is because, um, now there may not be blatantly obvious things where someone would go, gosh, Corey's really following a shadow mission today. That that's the insidious nature of the shadow mission is that I really know it within my heart and between my ears. Yeah. Like that is a shadow mission pursuit. I got to be honest. Um, which I, I'm always honest with you, Justin, but, uh, in regards to my own kind of interaction with, with social media, you and I have talked about this. You know, in my own journey, I did find that, although my social media activity was, it was, I tried to be pure with my intentions as far as posting different things and, and creating a platform and a presence, but there just came a point where it hit me where it was like, all this is doing, it, ultimately it's fueling my shadow mission. And I had to create kind of a drastic um, revolt, rebellion against that. To go, I've I've got to move away from this. And that could be, that could be social media. It could be someone's exercise habits. It could be their own pursuits of their job. I mean, it, it shows up in every area. But I think that's where um, having having people uh, in your life that can speak truth. For me, my own spiritual journey, my own faith journey, is such a critical element of of toning down that shadow mission of constantly putting that shadow mission in the right perspective of what of what the gospel says in my own spiritual journey, um, and that calibration is something that is it's been critical in my own in my own walk, um, but i think for me it's it's a daily thing it's not just one big event it's yeah. it's constant and as soon as you think you've got to figure it out <laughs> that's probably when the shadow <laughs> mission starts to creep back in yeah
1: yeah so good man so true um and, and what's interesting is yeah you, you you mentioned the social media thing you know f- w- this period of time i'm referencing kind of um the formation of guild content the, all of the stuff that kind of led to that point career-wise and and personally um we had this, uh, we meaning uh, Brooke and I had this kind of unearthed uh, tilling of the soil of really kind of hard broken, like let's work through some really tough stuff. And, and um, this was all around in that same period. And part of that for me too, was the social media side, the, the, hey, can I, and it was subtle, it was shadow, it wasn't intentional. Of course, there's some subconscious intention there. Um, But it was, hey, let's, let me um, project or build a persona that can get me the cheers and the accolades and the promotions and the Facebook likes and the Today Show articles, right? Yep. Um, and and and, but man, like if I'm super frank and honest, like I knew that that was not true north. Hmm. I was asking it to fill something that it could never fill. And, and there's a million examples I could share but one specific was um, we were taking the same son the only son we have was taking him to the batting cages and I texted Brooke and I was like, hey I'm gonna leave my phone in the car if you need me and it, and it's it sounds so elementary and so like even silly but we pulled up to the to the deal to the batting cages put the truck in park left the phone in the car went and watched my son hit baseball's for 20 minutes. Wasn't like forever, right? 20 minutes. And my ability to be present, it was just this really stark um, example of, oh, shadow mission, Justin would have been filming my son in the batting cage or distracted by looking at Instagram while he was hitting or whatever example was, right? Um, Or maybe at my worst, like getting Silas's best hit of the 30 and then posting that to Facebook and be like, dude, look at my son. He's amazing baseball player. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but in the moment present, Justin, not true North still by any means, but was dude, leave the phone in the car and like enjoy your damn son. Right. Pardon the language. Yeah. But, but that, and I, and I, and again, that, that's such a silly and there's a million other examples that are more important. Um, but that ability, at least for me to step into this like present, reality versus the shadow reality and, and and i do think social media is a big piece of that i think um the, the the age of this digital distraction is a huge piece of that um but but man like you you had some real power in my life in in those and still do but in, in that period of time i was like oh dude what a great construct to kind of think through
0: well and the you know the the one dynamic about social media and i'm not I'm not dogging social media, generally speaking. For me, in my own journey, social media was a fuel for my shadow mission, so I'll speak for myself on that. Cal Newport, who is a brilliant author, he, he defines solitude as being in a place where you're not taking input from other people. And so when you think about the amount of input that we take from others and from other things, social media being a huge one of those, we really have dismissed our lives of solitude very very uncommon to find a place of solitude and so that that area of solitude i think the reason why i've avoided solitude in the past is because i become alone with my own thoughts scary and that's a scary place to be kind of back to the social media thing i knew that it was a shadow mission pursuit about a year and a half after i i went away from the the big use of social media that that i used to be about specifically facebook and instagram and twitter i'm still on instagram but it's pretty passive Yeah, uh, at this point, but um, with Facebook, when I was when I was getting ready to to kind of cut the cord on Facebook, <laughs> I I had the thought, and this is a pretty vulnerable thought. I was like, I'm really gonna be missed by all my friends. Well, it took about a year for one person of my however many hundreds of friends. It took about a year for someone to be like, hey you haven't posted anything for a long time. Are you okay? One person after a year, like that made me realize how important I was on social media. Now, some people, they utilize social media platforms in such a powerful way and it's amazing and they enrich others. And so I'm not, it's not of an course. all or none, but in my own journey, I just realized like, wow, like that pretty much sums it up. I was waiting for people to miss me. I think that's a pretty good definition of a shadow mission. It's Like mm. what was the intent? Was it for people to be blessed by me, or was it just for people to miss me? Mm. And so, mm. um, ultimately it was a good life lesson and something that I've been able to even share with my own kids as we've, I, now I'm journeying with my kids through yeah. the social media age. And so, um, that's, that's, that's helped guide some of our conversations. And so in that, that, that there's that redemption of mm. even in my pursuit of a shadow mission that can be redeemed mm. for the help of others. And that's a gift.
1: Yeah, man. So good. It's so, so good, man. We, we've, we've got like 10 minutes left and it feels like you're, dude, you're going to have to come back. Like, let's just, <laughs> let's just put it that way. Cause there's still a million things I want to talk about. Um, I, I do though want to shift cause I think it, it, it's, it's so powerful and ties into all this. But if I say July 18th, 2013, what, what comes to your mind? What, what happened that day?
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a day I'll never forget. Um, a day that I think is both, uh, terrifying, but also uh, I'm, I'm thankful to have, to have gone through it and to have survived it. But it was a day that, and a lot of people are, are familiar with the story, especially here in the Liberty area. Um, I was training for uh, an Ironman triathlon that was going to occur in Boulder in August of that year. I was finishing up a training ride and, Less than a mile from my house, and there was a car that failed to yield, turning left, and it turned left in front of me. And I was on my tri-bike, and I remember thinking kind of out of the corner of my eye that that they weren't stopping, but it happened so quick I couldn't even tap my brakes. And so um, the car collided with me. We were both going about 25 miles uh, at each other, and so it was a pretty significant impact. And, um, I went into the windshield and flipped back over Mm. the car and got thrown about 20 feet. And, um, it was very serious scene. You know, the mechanism of injury was obviously very significant of of a car versus a a cyclist. And then, um, I had some pretty major trauma to the side of my face and my arm and my back. And, um, thankfully the, the Liberty fire department and the police department they were amazing the fire department was there within three or four minutes and got me stabilized in the ambulance um, because there was there was a couple of minutes there which I could just tell by the look on the paramedic's face that it was a very serious very serious thing that had just happened and so um, ultimately what happened was uh, went into the windshield and then kind of Mm -hmm. my head hit the top of the of this car and it actually my body actually totaled the car ultimately it was that much force Um, and the injuries were significant. I had about 300 stitches, primarily on my back and the side of my face and arm. I had three hairline fractures in my transverse processes of my L1, L2, L3 in my spine, and then <clears throat> a concussion and um, a pretty serious shoulder injury um, that, thankfully, with the help of an amazing physical therapist at, over at Modern PT, uh, they were able to get my arm back to 100% functional after about 18 Therapy sessions. But through all of that, it was really a miracle. Um, the trauma surgeon at the time when I was in Liberty hospital told me to go buy a lottery ticket because he said, there are many people who come in for far less mechanism and injury that ultimately do not survive. And so Mm. I, I walked away two days later from the hospital. Um, since then I've run, uh, Crazy amount of marathons, and I've done some ridiculous things. I've only been on a couple of bikes since then, but they were just little cruisers on vacation, uh, nothing, nothing serious like a triathlon bike. But um, so many things about that have led to so many amazing things. And yes, very traumatic. Yes, in fact, I saw the scars on my back this morning, and it was a reminder of the accident. But in the end, I believe that God uses those moments of trauma those experiences and those scars and other things can come out of that that is healthy that would have never been realized had it not been for that trauma and i think we all have those experiences some of us have physical scars some of us have emotional scars some of us have relational scars some of us have vocational scars whatever the case may be i believe that any of those scars can be used for redemptive purposes and I've continued to see how God has worked through that, um, and not because of me, but in spite of me at many times, and he's just been able to use that story. Um, my pastor, uh, Pastor Merle, over at Pleasant Valley Baptist Church, he w- really guided and walked through that season with me along with Pastor Tim, and one of the things that they continued to remind me about was that, that yes, this was a traumatic experience, that it is now part of my story, but it does not define who I am. So I have to acknowledge that this is part of my story now, but it does not define mm. me as a person. And um, so that was a very serious moment and a huge turning point. It gave me a lot of perspective. And being on the brink of potentially not walking away from that day was something that I'll never forget.
1: Man, and and uh, only because I know you're benevolent and humble and won't say it yourself, so i have to ask you and goad it out of you. Um, you've you you say, oh yeah, all these amazing things have happened, and and I'm not, I don't want to discount or minimize the pain and the trauma, because I I affirm that, like I think, our scars do tell our stories, um, and and I'm learning from from my own therapy work that the only way through the pain is through the pain. <laughs> There's no That's way awesome. around it. Yeah. There's no way to avoid it. There's no way to sidestep it. The only way through the pain is to actually go through the pain to sit in it. So, so you sat in that pain for a long time, but, and, and it doesn't always end this way, right? Like the story isn't always this, but if people Google your name, which I'm sure they will, it's going to talk about team world vision and all of this money that's raised for Africa and all these miles that have been run by all these other people. Like it, it's a, it's a very true and real Testament to all of the stuff you've been talking about is you've taken not just this moment like we don't need a black and white it but this this very traumatic experience um and you said man like this isn't even a, that in particular isn't even about me this is about something far bigger than me and, and um, maybe a good way to kind of end our time is is to talk about that um moment that was very traumatic that has led to this like spirit of generosity in this radical call to Pete, for people to live a, a more intentional life, whether, whether that's raising money for children in Africa or starting businesses or doing any other thing possible. But um, I'd love to hear your, your take on that as we, as we kind of turn our, our final rapid turn here on the river. Yeah. Bet.
0: <laughs> yeah I, I think for me, the, that particular day, July 18th, 2013 was, it was very much a, a catalyst it was a catalytic moment where I kind of walked away from that experience thankfully I walked away from that experience going I've been pursuing this endurance stuff and triathlons and marathons and but all I was really cared cared about was just the metal that I would wear around my neck like there's got to be more than just that and so that's what really got me thinking about how do I start using my story in a way to to help other people And it started pretty humble. I kind of did some grassroots things here and there. And then um, it led to this random opportunity to submit my story to Runner's World. That Runner's World story was side-by-side with one of the employees at Team World Vision. We ultimately got connected. I said, hey, what would it look like for you to start a chapter of Team World Vision or a team of Team World Vision in Kansas City? And then uh, Pleasant Valley embraced that as an opportunity to engage the congregation. And then it spread to... 30 different churches over the last five years, over $2 million raised for clean water efforts in sub-Saharan Africa, and then an opportunity for my wife and I to go to Rwanda and South Africa to experience the work, the great work of World Vision and what they're doing. And so I could have never scripted that. And honestly, in my own life, in my own journey, I couldn't have done any of that had it not been for that one that one accident, that one experience. Could Team World Vision have come to Kansas City uh, without my accident, of course they could have. But for me, I was pulled into that story as a result of that traumatic event. And so that has been something that I um, I look back on and I just go, you know what? <laughs> although it may feel dark and it may feel um, painful and although I might be seeping from my wound right now, I know that it can be redeemed. And if it is to be, it will be.
1: <laughs> good night man there's there yeah what a powerful way to end minus the cell phone call that I got. <laughs> um what a good what a what a way to end okay deep breath here um yeah. because we could I could literally do this for three more hours with you and feel like we're gonna have to um but we close every show with the same five questions so pretty straightforward a couple layups a couple softballs, and then a and then a hard hitter at the end um so, Corey, here we go. What is the last book that you read or listened to? Yeah,
0: um, the, the last book that I completed was When Breath Becomes Air, which is mm. it will wreck you. It's a book about a neurosurgeon who, at the age of 34, gets stage 4 lung cancer, mm. and it's just his journey. And it's just his journey towards dying. It's very powerful. I was weeping at the end of that book. Mm. Um, two books that I'm currently reading right now is an amazing book called Amazing Grace by Eric Metaxas. Uh, it's about William Wilberforce and um, his role in, in abolishing mm. the slave trade mm. in the early 1800s. And then I'm also reading a book called um, Becoming Whole, which talks about how the tagline is that um, how the opposite of poverty is not necessarily the American dream it's a very powerful look at how we have mm. kind of some misconstrued ideas about how to alleviate policy, uh, poverty in, in America. Mm. So mm. two really good reads right now.
1: Powerful, love it. Um, if you weren't afraid, and that's assuming you are afraid of something, what would you do?
0: Yeah, that that's a re I've been thinking about that question for several hours this morning because you sent me that in advance and that's definitely the hardest of the five. Um, I think it would probably be, being more intentional and systematic in the, the writing down of my thoughts Mm. and in a more structured way. And so Mm. I don't fully know what that looks like, but instead of it just being kind of a brainstorm session of actually saying, could this turn into an article or Mm. a series of articles or a book? I, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but, um, that's yes probably. should be the answer, as <laughs> I've told you before. That, yes, that's, that the world
1: needs. And I'm, um, I'm not that, sure. that brain dump. I'm not sure what the. Benefit.
0: I'm not, and I appreciate that encouragement. I don't know if there is fear there or just maybe hesitation, but I think that would be the thing that's top of mind.
1: Love it. Thanks for sharing, man. Um, what's one thing that if people knew you did, they would think you're a little bit off, a little yeah. bit weird. No question. (laughs) A little bit uh, 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 in the shadow. I'm not not specifically kidding.
0: No question. Uh, I've run 29 marathons. Uh, Two of them have been 50 or more miles. And uh, uh, that makes me look at myself and go, what are you doing? Uh, I do think that I'm officially retired from 50-mile running races. Um, But I do have Me too. (laughs) Never started. I do have an ongoing commitment to marathons. There's something amazing
1: about running a marathon, so... 29. Good night. Um, okay. What is your favorite place on earth?
0: That's an easy one. Kauai. And, mm. uh, my family, we're going to Kauai in February. So we're looking forward to that. We're, my wife and I get to share that experience with our children. And so we are super excited about that, but it is a magical place. That's awesome.
1: I love it. All right, man. Last one. Um, when it's all said and done, what do you, Corey Shear, want to be remembered for?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, this may sound cliche, but I think it's true. I, I hope they don't remember me necessarily. I hope they remember um, the God that I follow and the gospel that I try to represent. And um, if that is what is said of me, then I believe that my time has been well spent on this earth.
1: I love it, man. So so good. All right. um, Maybe maybe this question doesn't make sense, but if people wanted to follow along with you, now that you're not posting on Facebook, where would they? How could they um kind of hear more about your story or where could they get to know more about you
0: pretty it's pretty quiet out there as relates to social um i do have a linkedin account so i'm always happy to connect with people via linkedin a direct message um in the show notes i don't know if you guys do show notes but i'll i'll put my cell phone number in there if people want to call me uh, or send me a text um but for me i think the the best way to make a big world smaller is just to have a conversation with someone yeah. or a text conversation. And so if anyone's interested in some of the research that I've done and they want to connect, I'm happy to do it.
1: And if you are running a business or leading a team, I will implore you, you need to text him or call him because every, every conversation you will have with Corey will, will um, not only be enriching, but it, it will change you um, and it will change your business or your team. Because I think, Man, we didn't even scratch the surface on Enneagram, on micro-awareness, on all these other things that you've taught us. Um, but we'll come back to that at another time. So, uh, again, my hard sales pitch for everybody listening is if you're in the Kansas City area or not, you need to, you need to reach out to Corey if you care about the emotional health of your team, the um, financial stability and future of your company, um, of creating an impact of trust and connection and empathy, um, you need to reach out to Corey. It'll 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 absolutely change your life. So anyway, Thank Corey, thanks so much for yeah. being with us, my friend.
0: Thank you, Justin. It was really a privilege. Appreciate all you do and so grateful for our friendship and um it's been exciting to see you move forward into a, a land of the unknown with guild content and to see you guys thriving. It's
1: awesome. Yeah. A big part to you, my friend. Thanks so much, Corey.